Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome back. This is Father Matt, and you're listening to Exodus to the Empty Tomb, uh, to the conclusion of Exodus to the Empty Tomb, this, this series in which we've looked at how the second book of the Bible can help us understand the most important events in the history of the world, the Paschal Mystery, the life, death, and resurrection um, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we wrapped up Passover, which is really the key to all of this, and we talked about how the Israelites passing through the waters of the Red Sea is a type of baptism, right? Just as the Israelites were definitively freed from Paschal, uh, excuse me, from physical slavery to Pharaoh, by the waters of the Red Sea, uh, so too we are saved from, from spiritual slavery to sin, death, and the devil. We are freed from spiritual slavery to sin, death, and, de- and the devil by the waters of baptism. <clears throat> and, and, you know, baptism in a way, uh, it applies uh, the Paschal mystery, the grace Christ won for us on Calvary to our life, okay? Today, we're going to talk about something that I would say is incredibly practical, uh, how typology applies to our life, right? We're going to talk about the wandering in the wilderness, the desert, and its typological significance. It's a, it's a type of the Christian life. So I think we briefly touched on this at the end of the previous episode um, when I mentioned uh, that St. Augustine taught, you know, baptism isn't the end of the Christian life, but merely the beginning. And so just as after the waters of the Red Sea, Israel didn't enter right into the promised land. In fact, they had to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. So too, after baptism, uh, we uh, don't enter into heaven immediately, but we live this Christian life, which is a pilgrimage toward the true promised land of heaven, right? Um, And there are still many obstacles and dangers which we must overcome to arrive at our true homeland of heaven, okay? And actually, excuse me, we're going to start not by reading from Exodus, but we're going to jump to the New Testament, St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Uh, this is going to be 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Quote, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did, as it it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example. And they were written down to instruct us on whom the end of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. You know, St. Paul is he's reading the Bible typologically. He's seeing the, the spiritual sense of Scripture in Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert. 
And there's a lot here that I would love to touch on. Um, you know, this series could go on for quite a while, but there are some other, um, talk about at the end, there's some other content uh, we want to put out. Um, you know, he talks about, uh, for instance, he talks about those who were destroyed by serpents. That's recounted in Numbers 21. Uh, this is where they complain and, and um, the Lord sends these fiery seraph serpents who bite many of them and, and they die and, and they repent. Uh, and the Lord tells Moses to make a bronze serpent mounted on a pole, and all who gaze upon this bronze serpent will be healed. Um, and, and, you know, that Christ later in John 3, he connects the cross with the bronze serpent. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so when the Son of Man is lifted up, um, you know, I'll draw all people to myself. Um, I, would, I would love to go in depth with that, with, with a lot of these episodes in uh, from the wandering in the desert that St. Paul gets into. We're, we're going to go into some, but not all. Mainly here, though, what, what the main thing to take away is that Israel, in wandering in the desert, on the whole, they weren't faithful. They were guilty of infidelity. Infidelity, excuse me. Uh, but I, what I want to focus on now is St. Paul's words at the introduction. He says the wandering in the desert, it ought to serve as a lesson for us. And that lesson is that after baptism, we need to be vigilant, watchful, alert. Why? Because we have an enemy, the devil, who's prowling like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, and so we must resist him. You know, Dr. Feingold comments on this passage from St. Paul, quote, the Israelites were allowed to fall into a series of archetypical sins, archetype, archetypical sins of rebellion, followed by exemplary punishments, to provide a graphic example of the spiritual sins, just as the first generation of Israelites uh, perished in the desert for lack of docility to God, so it may happen that Christians fail to reach the spiritual promised land through the same cause, end quote. What Dr. Feingold is talking about there is that the vast majority of Israelites who left Egypt died before reaching the promised land. They died in the wilderness or in the desert. In fact, only two of the original Israelites were alive to enter the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. He was allowed to see it from a distance. And so this is a warning to us that, that after bap baptism is not some ticket into heaven, okay? We need to be vigilant. Um, we could fail to reach the true promised land of heaven uh, that's the warning St. Paul is making here. Another takeaway from, from 1 Corinthians 10, I think, is that, look, we need to recognize that we are pilgrims in this life. This life is not our true homeland. And so we have to live as strangers and sojourners in this world. What does that mean? Well, it means recognizing this life as a journey towards heaven, towards becoming a saint, seeing God face to face. This is our destiny. This is what will ultimately make us happy. Uh, and, and we need to order our life accordingly. Let me give an example, uh, kind of a secular example of what I'm talking about. Some of you may be watching The Last Dance, the 10-part documentary on ESPN about Michael Jordan, who is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. I was, I was watching it on Sunday, um, and one of the episodes they were talking about Michael Jordan's um, rather famous intensity, his competitiveness, you know, um, and, and he was notoriously hard on teammates. He would ride them. He didn't mind being a jerk. He demanded excellence from them because he wanted to win that bad. 
He's a guy whose whole life was directed towards winning championships in basketball, and he did phenomenally well at that. Now, the drive Michael Jordan had to win, that ought to be our drive towards getting to heaven. Not that we need to be a jerk to other people. We don't, we don't need to do that. But we ought to have the same intensity about our spiritual life as Michael Jordan did about basketball. We ought to be striving to grow in prayer, to grow in virtue, to grow in holiness. St. Thomas Aquinas was once asked by his sister, what must I do to become a saint? And he said, very simply, will it? Now, granted, to be holy first and foremost is a work of God's grace, uh, but we can either cooperate with that grace or not. Too often, we take a very soft approach to the faith. We do the very bare minimum, hoping to avoid hell. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to live this comfortable life here where we can embrace pleasures, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, and still go to heaven. But no, we, we are not made to avoid hell by the skin of our teeth. We ought to strive to become like saints the way Michael Jordan strove to win championships. And God will give us the grace. We just need to cooperate. This means we must live a sacramental life. We must frequent the sacraments uh, when available and prudent for us to do so, which usually it is prudent for us to do so right now. Maybe, maybe not, depending on where you live. And we need to live a life of prayer. We need to live a life of prayer in accord with our state in life. So uh, when, when, when I say life of prayer, um, you know, I'm talking about mental prayer, meditation. This is what St. Teresa of Avila called the infallible means of becoming a saint, where we usually reflecting on, say, the Gospels, we, we, we take 20, 30 minutes, we reflect on the Gospels, we speak to our Lord in our hearts and minds, and most especially listen in our hearts and minds, and we come away with some resolution. Um, but it needs to be in accord with our state in life. So St. Francis de Sales talks about this in his spiritual classic, Introduction to the Devout Life, which, by the way, if anyone's looking for some good summer reading, this would be an excellent book. St. Francis de Sales writes, When God created the world, he commanded each tree to bear fruit after its kind. And even so, he bids Christians, the living trees of his church, to bring forth fruits of devotion, each one according to his kind in vocation. A different exercise of devotion is required of each, the noble, the artisan, the servant, the prince, the maiden, and the wife. And furthermore, such practice must be modified according to the strength, the calling, and the duties of each individual. I ask you, my child, would it be fitting that a bishop should seek to lead a solitary life of a Carthusian? And if the father of a family were as regardless in making provisions for the future as a Capuchin, if the artisan spent the day in church like a religious, if the religious involved himself in all manner of business on his neighbor's behalf, as a bishop is called upon to do, would not such a devotion be ridiculous, ill-regulated, and intolerable? Nevertheless, such a mistake is often made. In the world which cannot or will not discriminate between real devotion and the indiscretion of those who fancy themselves devout, grumbles and finds fault with devotion, which is really no wise concerned in these errors. No, indeed, my child, the devotion which is true hinders nothing. But on the contrary, it perfects everything, and that which runs counter to the rightful vocation of anyone is, you may be sure, a spurious devotion. So we need to live this life of prayer, this life of devotion, in accord with our state in life, right? So it would be wrong for um, you know, most of you will probably be called to marriage. Um, some of you are undoubtedly called to priesthood or religious life, but, but most 
of the faithful, their vocation is marriage. And so, you know, he, he made the statement here, if a father of a family uh, were as regardless in making provisions for the future as a Capuchin, you know, the implication is that that would be, um, that would be very harmful. You know, a father um, of a family, a, a husband and father, a wife and mother, their holiness is found in their state in life. Now, they still need to pray, uh, but their holiness is found in, in fulfilling those duties of their state in life. Uh, and the prayer of a father or mother, it will look differently depending on uh, where they are in their life. So if they have young children, right? I mean, a mother with a, with a three-year-old and an infant, it's not going to have, you know, having 30 minutes of quiet time might be difficult. Maybe she can just offer to God 10. Maybe it's just a, a maybe she just prays a rosary, which rosary should be a meditation. We should be meditating on the mysteries of, of Christ's life. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's just a rosary that she can offer when the kids are in bed or whatnot. Um, and then when the kids are older, maybe she has more time. Um, uh, so, you know, it needs to be in accord with our state in life. Okay. In summary, then, to live as a pilgrim is to see our life as a journey towards heaven and then to direct our life towards that destination. Anything which helps us in making that destination, we keep. Anything that hampers, we get rid of. We must be men and women who frequent the sacraments, pursue virtue, and live lives of prayer according to our state in life. Okay, Let's talk about rebellion in the desert, the the rebellion of the Israelites uh, as they wandered in the desert, and um, how God nonetheless in his goodness provided for them. So the miracle at the Red Sea, which we talked about last time, that is detailed in Exodus 14. Exodus 15 begins with the song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. They, they sing about the Lord's triumph over Pharaoh uh, that freed them from slavery. I want to pick up with Exodus Uh, 15 verse 22, okay, Uh, beginning with verse 22. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to uh, Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. That is why they called, that, that is why it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Let's stop right there. Two things I want to point out. Um, The bitter waters are made sweet because the Lord had Moses throw a piece of wood into the water. Is that significant? Yes. It is the wood of the cross of Jesus Christ which makes the waters of baptism sweet in that the waters of baptism are life-giving. Um, secondly, though, notice the people complained against Moses. This will not be the first time uh, we see this in Exodus. Um, you know, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 told us that the wandering in the desert, uh, you know, that the, the, the events that occur in the wandering in the desert is meant to teach us. And let's ask ourselves, what ensnared the Israelites in the desert? Their lack of faith? Yes. Their lack of trust? Yes. But also murmuring, complaining, you know, I think it was Father John Harden who said, if you want to be a saint, stop complaining. Uh, this is something that the example of the Israelites in the desert teaches us, something I know I certainly could work on as well. Picking up again with the rest of verse 25, quote, 
there the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. The Lord uh, is good to them, but um, he is going to put them to the test. And and make no mistake about it, this Christian life, uh, we are being put to the test as well. Uh, But we we do not need to be afraid. Uh, We do not need to let that um, lead us to despair. And we'll talk about that here uh, towards the end of this episode. Moving on to Exodus 16. Okay, so we just finished the end of 15. Now we're in 16. We read, The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Once again, murmuring, grumbling, complaining. Now, they're hungry, right? Uh, And not like I haven't eaten for four hours hungry. Uh, I mean, this would have been a substantial hunger. Uh, But they also lack trust and faith in the Lord, right? That's the sin of this generation, you know, think about it. I mean, they were just freed by slavery, by the miraculous power of God. Pharaoh's chariots and charioteers were closing in on them. They were going to be mowed down in the desert. And God showed up and miraculously, uh, not only did he free them, but he destroyed Pharaoh and his chariots and charioteers. And then they didn't have water. And God miraculously provided water for them to drink. Would not God provide food for them? Yet they persisted in their stubborn refusal to trust God. The Lord answers this murmuring by sending an incredible miracle, the manna from heaven. Uh, Picking up in verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them, whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Now, let's put this in perspective. From a natural perspective, the nation of Israel should have perished, um, or at least the vast majority of them should have, in the, in the wilderness. They were a nation of slaves trained in hard manual labor, brick making. They didn't know how to survive in the wilderness. I mean, sure, of course, I'm, a few hardy souls could have learned to hunt, build shelter, find water for themselves, for their families. But an entire nation? No. Yet they didn't die of starvation as as they feared in their grumbling and complaining. The Lord provided them day after day. He miraculously rained down manna, this mysterious bread from heaven, and he gave them water miraculously from the rock. Uh, The manna was a mysterious and miraculous food whose purpose was to nourish their bodies during this wandering in the desert, this pilgrimage towards the promised land. And once they entered the promised land, the manna ceased. God ceased to rain down this bread from heaven. As with everything we've been exploring in this series, these events 
these events God has written a deeper meaning into. They are types, images, previews, if you will, the things to come. Just as the Israelites who passed through the waters of the Red Sea so as to escape the physical slavery of Egypt, so too we have passed through the waters of baptism and escaped the spiritual slavery of sin. The Israelites had to wander 40 years in the desert before they could enter the promised land. After baptism, we must endure this earthly pilgrimage before entering the true promised land of heaven. And like the Israelites, who were sustained through their sojourn in the desert with manna and the miraculous water, we are spiritually sustained on our earthly pilgrimage through the desert of this life with the bread of life. The bread which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, the most holy Eucharist, the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, really, truly, and substantially present under the appearance of bread and wine. The Eucharist is meant to nourish us on this earthly pilgrimage, to nourish the supernatural life of grace within us that we receive at baptism. Nevertheless, as St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.5, God was not pleased with most of them, most of the Israelites, and they were struck down in the wilderness. In spite of all the marvels God kept doing for the Israelites during the Exodus, only a few of those who left Egypt managed to enter the Promised Land because many, perhaps most, continued to doubt, to rebel, to not heed the commands of the Lord. Right? They had witnessed miracles, they had passed the waters of the Red Sea, they had eaten the manna, but they remained interiorly unrepentant. This is a warning. St. Paul says this is a warning for us, that however many benefits God showers on us, no one should think that his eternal salvation is assured. He is saying, don't let what happened to the Israelites in the desert happen to you, happen to us. Yes, we're very blessed to have been baptized. We are very blessed to receive our Lord in the Most Holy Eucharist, but the sacraments aren't a ticket guaranteeing our entrance into the pearly gates. We must turn away from sin and order our lives in accord with Christ and what he teaches. In short, we must repent. Uh, we must persevere in the faith. You know, Hebrews 4 in the New Testament, it also uh, picks up this theme that St. Paul touches on in, in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, beginning with Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for indeed the good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as God said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter into my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, it says, They shall not enter into my rest. Since, therefore, it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath day still remains for the people of God, for those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Indeed, the word of God is living and, effect, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow, 
It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before him no creature is hidden. But all are naked and lay bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. You know, the message of Hebrews 4, it's similar to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to have to render an account for us. Uh, and, and like the Israelites in the wandering of the desert, not all of them entered into his rest, not all of them entered into the promised land. In fact, the vast majority of them did not. So too, that can happen to us. Now, you might be thinking, man, what an uplifting message. But it's the truth. I, I wouldn't be doing my job, and I would be doing everyone a disservice if I watered down St. Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10 and, Hebrew, and the warning in Hebrews 4. However, we don't need to be afraid. God will not test us beyond our strength, as St. Paul says. Yes, in this life we must be vigilant. We have an enemy prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. To devour. We have the possibility of not entering into God's rest. But we also have God on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? As long as we persevere in the faith, as long as we don't give up, then he will complete the good work he has begun in us. He will bring us to the end of our pilgrimage, to our true homeland of heaven, as long as we persevere. And even more than that, we have our great high priest, Jesus Christ, one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, because he's been tested in every way, yet without sin, where we failed, where the Israelites failed, he succeeded. So Hebrews is telling us, don't be afraid, but approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive what? Mercy, forgiveness for our sins, and the grace to help us in time of need. Yes, it is a hard road to heaven, but we don't need to be afraid, and we don't have to make this pilgrimage alone. And in Christ, we have every help we can possibly need. This concludes our series, Exodus to the Empty Tomb. Thank you for taking time to listen. Uh, we will have some more content uh, coming out this summer, including a virtual book study Patrick Callahan and I are putting together on G.K. Chesterton's classic, Orthodoxy. Um, in the meantime, let us pray for each other, that we all persevere along the pilgrimage that is the Christian life, so that we can one day enjoy the eternal bliss of the true promised land, our true homeland, the new and eternal Jerusalem, our homeland of heaven. Thanks for listening to Emporia State Catholics, a ministry of the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Please consider supporting us by visiting www.diddycenter.org backslash donate.